New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today we'll be exploring and understanding how narcissism operates in our lives and society, its benefits and its costs. We'll be looking at personality disorders and personality science and the ways in which people are harmed and helped by narcissism with our guest, Dr. W. Keith Campbell. Dr. Campbell is professor of psychology at the University of Georgia and is a nationally recognized expert on narcissism, society, and generational change. Both his work and lectures expose the rise of narcissism and individualism more generally and its influence on every level of society. His books include When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself, How to Deal with a One-Way Relationship, and The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. Join us for the next hour as we explore the narcissistic personality and how to skillfully deal with the behaviors of narcissists with our guest, Dr. W. Keith Campbell. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Keith, welcome to New Dimensions. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I I need to ask you first of all, what got you into this this research? I mean, you chose this research, and yeah. if you can go back to those early days of what what shifted your thinking to say, I'm going to explore narcissism. Well, it's been a while. I've been doing this since grad school, really. So you're looking 25, 30 years. Um, at the time, I think there was a few things that attracted me to narcissism. One, which is more of a, a kind of classic social psychology question, is why are some people self-enhancing? Why do some people promote themselves, um, brag about themselves, seek attention, you know, steal credit from others? And why do other people not do that? You know, why are there differences between that? And narcissism seemed to be an and one answer to that question, at least a way, by studying narcissism, I could really understand that part of ego. Um, the other thing that was interesting is I, you know, as a kid growing up in California, I wanted to study Buddhism and the, and the non-self and non-attachment. And that was always very interesting to me, but I couldn't do it. I, I just, at the time, I, I didn't have the tools. I didn't really have, know how to measure it. But narcissism is a way of understanding the self that's very out there. It's in your face. You can see it. 
So it's a, it was an interesting thing to study from a research perspective. And then, you know, like everybody, you know, right now there are people who are studying coronaviruses and this is their time. They're like, I've been waiting my whole life and this is my time. I started saying narcissism and the world just kind of fell apart. We had, I'm laughing already, but we had, you know, school shootings and people got interested in narcissism back with Columbine and why are people shooting people for attention? It was very strange. And then we had social media and selfies and, and, uh, and I got very interested in how narcissism was related to things like MySpace and Facebook back in the day. We had generational change in narcissism, which became very interesting. And, and now, you know, there's questions about leadership. There's questions still about social media. There's questions about basically getting along with people. So narcissism just keeps being a relevant topic I kind of wish I wa- it wasn't, you know, it'd be great if like, guess what? We don't need narcissism anymore. Everybody's really chilled or happy. Uh, it didn't happen. So I, I yeah. keep going. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I, the need is still there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's go back to where that term came from. And I think you, you take us back to Greek and Roman mythology. So if you could just mention yeah. that. So the term narcissism, um, it really comes from the myth of Narcissus. And this myth is originally Greek, but you know, the telling we hear is uh, the, the Roman version. But Narcissus is a beautiful uh, young man. He falls in love uh, with himself and a reflection in the water, a river, or pond different tellings and he dies and he dies some in some versions he drowns and he just stares at himself and when he dies a, a flower grows and that flower is what we today call the narcissus which is a day lily so if you see a narcissus in your yard it comes from the same myth so the idea of the myth of narcissus is that somebody who's very full of himself to the extent that he falls in love with his own image in some tellings, there's another character, which is Echo, who falls in love with Narcissus and repeats everything he says, hence the term Echo that we use. Uh, and Echo eventually fades away because Narcissus doesn't return her love. So it's a, it's, it's a tragedy about, you know, the, the cost of self-love, that you love yourself so much, you lose the potential for relationships there's also the suggestion of growth in there, too, that different psychologists have played with. But, but that's where the term comes from. You know, there, back in 100 years ago, people were looking for these psychology terms, and a lot went to Greek myths. We have, you know, the Oedipal complex or Elector complex, and Narcissus is one. So there's these other, you know, these sort of Greek terms that came into our psychological language. I think it's interesting that in the telling of the myth, uh, where the one where it has an echo in it, yeah, it it's like um, narcissus lives in an echo chamber, like what we call now an echo chamber, yeah. where we only hear ourselves. Okay. I think that is a really good point. It's it's you know, it's ego, and and when you're the center of your own narrative, and you're listening and watching. Uh, how you interact with the world and everything that doesn't go your way, you're like, I've got to distort the world to make the story that I'm the winner. You know, you end up creating a, sometimes they, they would use the term a narcissistic cocoon, a narcissistic bubble, a narcissistic echo chamber, whatever it is, you're, you're creating a space around yourself where you're not connecting to other people because your ego doesn't let you. You're not willing to 
to let go of something to, to connect. Well, as you say that in these times, um, narcissism is kind of a buzzword in our in our culture. What is it really now in right now beyond yeah. the myth, and where are we now in um, yeah. narcissism? I mean, that's a great point. People use the term narcissism a lot without really knowing what it means, and often they use it as a jerk, you know jerk. So it's this sort of synonymous with you narcissistic jerk. You're self-centered, and and that's part of the meaning. But there's a lot of ways to be a jerk. You know, you, know, you don't just have to be narcissistic. When we use the term narcissism in the psychology world, we're talking about really three different things. Most commonly, we're talking about a personality trait, meaning we all have some level of it, some more than others, and it's a combination of this core of maybe self-importance or a sense of entitlement, a sense of maybe callousness. You think you're better than other people. You deserve special treatment. And if you attach that sense of, of entitlement to drive and ambition and charisma, kind of the more active, agentic parts of narcissism, you get what we call grandiose narcissism. So if you think of, uh, you know, a lot of political leaders, celebrities, you know, Iron Man in the movie, these people that are kind of extroverted and outgoing, but also sort of self-centered and selfish, that is grandiose narcissism. And that's what we're used to, most of us, because we've worked for somebody like this, or we've dated somebody like this, and it's been kind of a disaster, even though it might have been fun at first. And that's, so this is usually what people talk about when they talk about narcissism. Another way it's used is a combination of this selfishness, but also with insecurity or vulnerability. So you think people think, you know, I'm, I'm a legend, but don't threaten me because I can't take it because I'm a little bit weak and my self-esteem's a little low. So it's this conflicted um, self-concept or personality where you're a combination of somebody who thinks they're important and should be treated specially, but you also don't really like yourself. You're a little insecure. You might be a little shy. And those people, which we call vulnerable narcissists, we call it vulnerable narcissism, they end up seeing clinical psychologists or psychiatrists or therapists because they, they are suffering. They're like, I'm depressed. Why don't people understand how great I am? So you have this weird position where the people in the clinical field, when they see narcissism, are often seeing this more vulnerable form. Those of us in the more social personality world who are studying leadership or relationships see this more grandiose form. And they're both legitimate forms of narcissism that share this sort of core of selfishness or entitlement, but it can be a more grandiose form or a more vulnerable hidden form. The third way people use narcissism is the clinical disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, which is a personality disorder. And what a personality disorder is, is an extreme form of personality. So to be have narcissistic personality disorder, you'd have a high amount of narcissism, both grandiose and vulnerable. There's components of both in the definition. There's a lot of debate about this. But you also need impairment, clinically significant impairment, to have a clinical disorder. So if I'm really narcissistic and it's working out great, it's not a disorder. If I'm really narcissistic and I've lost my, my marriage because my wife can't take me anymore and my kids don't talk to me, 
I'm losing business success because my employees are leaving me. Maybe I've gotten too much risk taking. I got so full of myself. I bet all my money on on a on a uh, financial outcome that didn't come true. When I start doing that, it becomes impairing. I get a disorder. I get a diagnosis at that point. So if it's not impairing, we don't call it a disorder. We just call it a personality. And uh, I read somewhere that there is a, a DNA element to narcissism. I, am I correct in that? It's genetic. It's heritable. So meaning that when we look at twin studies with narcissism and look at how narcissism is passed through families, narcissism is very heritable. Uh, it's Most personality traits we look at are about 50% heritable. And narcissism seems to be on the higher end of that estimate, at least grandiose narcissism. So there is something about it that's inherited. In terms of the specific genes, we don't know. Um, What we know from personality science in general is that there is no single gene or there's no narcissism gene. I can almost guarantee we won't find two genes or three genes that are narcissism genes. It's going to be a combination of hundreds of genes working together. So I I don't want anyone out there going, I'm going to get a (laughs) genotype and oh my goodness, I'm going to get my narcissism tested. But eventually we will be able to take a, a cheek swab and we'll be able to guess your narcissism score with some bit of accuracy the same way we can guess it from your Facebook page. We'll talk more about that in a moment and what's good about narcissism as well as what is not beneficial about it. So I just want to remind our listeners, I'm here with W. Keith Campbell. He is a psychologist at the University of Georgia, and he's the author of The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of Our Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. W. Keith Campbell, and he's the author of The New Science of Narcissism. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, wkeithcampbell.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Keith, we're talking about narcissism. I want to also outline the positive things about narcissism, because like there's, it's on a spectrum, isn't it? Absolutely. And 
my general feeling about personality is that there are benefits and costs to all personality at the extremes. If you're too extroverted, it can be a problem. If you're too introverted, it can be a problem. If you're too curious, it can be a problem. If you're too non-curious, it can be a problem. So we, we're designed to be kind of in the middle as people. And so given that, narcissism should have some benefits or else it just would go away. Um, and when I've looked at those benefits, they, te- they seem to be largely in the short term, meaning narcissism is really good for meeting people at a bar. It's really good for meeting people at a party. It's good for doing work like this. It's good for doing public, you know, public work, getting in front of a group and talking, having a little bit of ego, you know, helps. Um, people who are narcissistic are judged to be good leaders and rise to leadership very quickly. So they emerge as leaders. They might not be effective, but they emerge that way. And pe- people who are, are narcissistic often feel good about themselves. They have high self-esteem. And this is with the grandiose narcissism. So it has these benefits for the self in the short term. Uh, and the costs usually take a little longer to be seen. So narcissism might make you really good at, at finding someone to marry you or finding someone to start a relationship with. But when you're in the relationship, it's going to be challenging for you because you might always be looking for somebody a little bit better rather than focusing more on the emotional intimacy of the relationship. And narcissism might be really good for becoming a leader, but when you're a leader, it might not be so good because you're not paying attention to people or your own ego is, is hurting your, your, um, your followers. I give you examples, but I'm going to slow down there. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you like, because you give an example in your book that about leadership, I think that's very vivid for those of us who have, let's say, if we've seen the movie Patton with uh, George C. Scott, I think it really outlines it really well. I'm happy to share that. Please. Yeah. So when I started at at UGA, uh, I had a colleague, Sid Rosen, who was an older gentleman who's a social psychologist. And he was a, he fought with Patton in World War II. And as a young guy, you know, growing up watching these movies, and I thought, oh, my God, he fought for Patton. How amazing was that? And I went and said, Sid, how is, how is it? And he said, it was awful. Patton was the worst leader ever. He said, our, the German tanks were so much better than ours, and we'd up-armor ours. We'd cover them with, with sandbags and, and, uh, and, and barbed wire and things because we had to. And Patton thought it made us look weak. And, and made us get all that off our tanks. And we were, you know, we hated him. We had Bradley come as a leader and Bradley cared about us, cared about the troops and we loved him. But people didn't make movies about Bradley because he didn't run around and be riding stuff and <laughs> with a pearl handled revolver. And, and Patton's a great example of a very narcissistic leader. People know his name. Uh, I know his name. They made movies of him because he's so interesting. But ultimately, he was kind of derailed in his leadership. He he wasn't really a, the great leader he could have been because his ego got in his way to some extent. So the same ego that made him a leader also derailed him at that high level. If that so that's the point that you're making is that if somebody's on the spectrum of narcissism that's going yeah. toward the extreme, they'll do themselves in after a while. Yeah. Yes. So even in the Patton movie, there's that scene, I've been a long time, but he slaps one of his troops and has to apologize for that. And that's a case where his ego just got in his way. Um, so 
you know, ego is a dangerous thing. It, it can be, it can help you get ahead, um, but it can become intoxicating. And when you're in a position of power, people won't tell you the truth. They're sucking up to you all the time. They're seeking your favor. So it's very hard to get reality checks in there. And, and that's when you become at risk. You become un, untethered from reality. So let's talk about, uh, because it's so up in the culture right now, about diagnosing presidents and the other public figures. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, Trump brings up a, a lot of that. And the other, but there are other, there are yeah. plenty, our, our own governors <laughs> or our, our school board directors or whatever. They're, they're all. So um, yeah. can psychologists and psychiatrists offer professional um, opinions about public figures? You know, there's a debate going back to Goldwater and a group of psychi psychiatrists. So this is where I get the psychiatrists who are MDs versus psychologists versus clinical psychologists who have PhDs. And so what happened during the Goldwater campaign is the, a group of psychiatrists made a claim that Goldwater had this, these mental problems and he sued and, and, he, and he won. And, and they were wrong. I mean, these were psychiatrists who were supporting Lyndon Johnson as the paragon of mental health. And he's one of the most narcissistic presidents we've ever had, probably the most. Uh, we'll see in a few, you know, we got more data and more time, but he's he's certainly up there. We've, we, we have the data and he's, he's on the top right now. Um, so what happened is they made a rule that they said you can't do diagnosis from afar. Now, my personal opinion of this is psychiatrists can do what they want. My feeling is that a psychiatrist should be able to have any speech rights anyone has. If a psychiatrist wants to say the president has this clinical disorder, they should be allowed to say it. I mean, that just seems reasonable to me. I, it's not my area. I'm not a psychiatrist. There is a challenge diagnosing from afar, but um, I think people can reasonably look at traits of public figures. They can make a guess about those traits. They can fit those traits in a diagnosis. Look, I don't do it. I don't, I don't label people with a clinical disorder. I'm not a clinical, I'm not clinically trained. I don't, I don't like putting people in clinical boxes, but I think people who have that training should be able to do it. I might disagree. I might agree, but I, I don't, I think it's possible. The other thing that's there's a little more subtle point here. Back in the '60s, when we were diagnosing people, we were talking about we were talking about psychodynamics. So we'd say, "You seem this way, but deep down, you must dislike yourself because of your family." That's a very hard judgment for me to make of anyone. How do I know your family? Today, we tend to look more at personality traits that are more visible. So. Anyone could look at a political leader and make a judgment of those people's traits. They're public figures. We see the traits. We're not looking for something that secret. And using that strategy, I think it's much easier to, to make something close to a diagnosis. Well, I'd, I'd like to ask you, uh, recently you uh, uh, were featured in an uh, article in a uh, in The Hill, which is a daily uh, publication about politics and what's going on in in the world and culture today. And um, in this, the, the article was called How COVID-19 Has Failed 
narcissistic leaders. Yeah. That's a what? Okay. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So um, one of the strategies you see with narcissistic leaders, you see this with a lot of leaders, but you see it especially with narcissism, is it's this very interpersonal bluster, smack-talking derogation of your opponent. So people will make fun of their opponents, they'll derogate them, people will do it back, you try to, to slander your opponents to the extent possible, you try to give them silly nicknames, I mean, that's just how we do politics. That works when you're dealing with a human being. When you're dealing with a virus, it, it, it just doesn't work. It, it, none of these strategies that are interpersonal that you develop over years as a leader, your political leader, you learn how to fight people, fend them off, belittle them, stab them, do all that. I mean, it's just, it, it's hardball. I mean, politics is tough. You try all those things on a virus, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. You do it through a pandemic. And, and that's why partly I'm such a bl big believer in natural consequences. Nature doesn't care. It doesn't care about your ego. You're out sailing or surfing or skiing or hiking or, you know, on a river. Nature doesn't care. You're going to make it or not based on your own wits. So I think that's something that's really changed the dynamic dramatically right now is you have all these leaders, and it's not just Trump. There's a lot of ego in this country, and we you can watch it in all different governors and school boards and everybody, and they're facing a, a, an opponent they can't control, they can't belittle, they can't manipulate, and they're trying all sorts of, all sorts of different strategies, psychological strategies that are failing. And so people are... It's just very interesting. It's like instead of a fight with two people, this other, you know, it's like there are two people in a boxing match and someone just dropped a crocodile in the ring. And it's very hard to understand. It's something we haven't seen in a long time. So it's interesting. Well, in doing that, that classic, let's say, narcissistic leaders are those who would unite us together to fight a common enemy. Yeah. It, so the challenge, so this is a, the basic issue with pandemics and, and leadership and groups that this is a social psychological issue. The classic model of leadership is we all will fight until there's an enemy. And then we're all going to get together and, and align with each other, forget our petty differences to fight an enemy. So that's why all the movies are, you know, hey, the aliens are invading, the Russians are invading, the Chinese are invading, everybody's invading, because that's it makes people feel good. The problem with a pandemic is that it makes you distrust other people in your own community. So what they're saying is, hey, everyone get together, but stay six feet apart and don't actually talk to each other behind masks. And if that person doesn't do it, maybe they're a bad person because they're giving you the virus. So it, it, it's a very challenging thing. On one hand, people have become very nationalistic. They've banned people from other countries visiting. Um, we, we see things that look like nationalism emerging in the face of this pandemic, but you don't see the trust or the cultural cohesion you'd see. You see people being pushed apart. It's a very, very challenging social environment. That's a really fascinating uh, because um, it is kind of separating us rather than bringing us together. Right. So that's a huge challenge. 
but there there are upsides to this uh, or you see some some hope coming coming out of this and i i really want to want to talk about that in in just one moment but i i also want to remind our listeners that i'm here with dr w keith Campbell, and he's a psychologist professor at the University of Georgia, and he is the author of The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What We Can Do About It. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website. It's wkeithcampbell.com, or you could get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.com. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Here with Dr. W. Keith Campbell, and we're talking about narcissism and, and narcissism in our country. And we we were just talking about the downside of COVID nineteen and how it's um, separating us in in many ways. But there is hope. I mean, at least you see some hope, and I I want you to help us understand that. Yeah, I, I mean. Uh, sometimes my view of these things is that we're going through cultural change. I study cultural change. I've studied it a long time. People have predicted this change since I started. This, they sometimes talk about the fourth turning, um, but it's a major phase change in society. When I go surfing and I get hit by a wave, I know I'm going to come up, but when I'm underwater, it feels like maybe I'm never getting up again. I've come up every time. When you're in the midst of a cultural change, it feels like everything's becoming unmoored and we might never restabilize. But we will restabilize. We restabilized in 68. We restabilized in 1918. I mean, we will restabilize as a culture. That will happen. Um, What's happening now are people are learning and changing and growing at, at massive speed. I mean, whether they're learning how to use Zoom or they're learning how to, you know, teach their kids at home or they're learning how to work out by themselves because they can't go to a class. And so people are learning lots of new skills and they're learning a lot about who to trust, who not to trust. We're seeing these leaders of all our different levels of society, of different organizations. We're seeing them fail. We're seeing them succeed. We're learning a lot in this process and we're learning a lot about ourselves. So my hope and, and I try to be optimistic, um, is that we're going to come out of this and we're going to have learned a lot in the process and hopefully be better people and hopefully be a lot more understanding of each other and a lot less judgmental because we've seen everyone get dragged through this, this uh, pandemic and, and the psychological suffering that people are going through is so immense. I hope that on the other side, there'll be, be some empathy that will come from that as well. So talk about what the importance of empathy is and how it might not be displayed so much with someone tending toward extreme narcissism. 
Yeah. So empathy is the ability to feel or perceive somebody else's emotional state. So sometimes we use empathy to mean perspective. Do you know what that person's feeling? And can you puzzle it out? Do you know what they're feeling? Do you really, can you really feel that? Do you feel that sense of compassion maybe that comes up because you know they're suffering, you can feel that suffering. What we find with narcissism, and the literature on this is not perfect, is that they seem to have the ability to understand what people are thinking. They seem to have the ability to be empathetic, at least cognitively, meaning, yeah, I know that person's suffering. What seems to be lacking is the motivation isn't there as strongly. They're not leading with their heart. They're not going into a situation saying, yeah, what can I do to make this place right? I feel suffering. That's not how it works. It's more, how can I get some attention in this situation? How can I get what I want? And in fact, lots of people we've interviewed, and this is more recent research some of our students have done, um, people who are narcissistic often know that they lack some empathy or they lack some compassion. And they know that's a problem. It's not that you're dealing with straight up psychopaths or people who can't feel anything. Um, It's really more of a deficit than an utter inability to be empathetic or compassionate. You know, there there is a psychological term or psychologists have called this um, the energy clash model. And what exactly is that? So the idea, and this, this idea is straight out of leadership. And so what happens is when you have, a, you have any organization, I'm thinking about a business, could be a country, could be a society, could be anything. When you have new leaders come in, the, the old guard often will try to repel them. So what happens is new leader comes in, the old guard goes, oh my gosh, we don't want things to change. And there is a clash between those forces. And I think about this thing in a very physics way that really just you have these opposing forces and they just go to town on each other and they attack. And eventually somebody wins, somebody's expelled or things just reorient and there's stabilization. But the process only happens for so long because either the new leader gets thrown out of the system, we bring in new leadership, do it again, or there's some stabilization in the system. So in the case of Trump, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. You bring in a new leader. There's a pushback. We've had, a, you know, we've had an impeachment. That's classic energy clash. In fact, <laughs> we, we've looked at enough president's data that when the impeachment happened, one of my colleagues just tweeted out, like, science works. <laughs> this is totally <laughs> predicted by the models. Um, doesn't always work that well. So, so that energy clash component is when these two forces meet and they try to settle out who's going to run things, how things are going to work out. And then they, then that it gets settled. I mean, things settle and there'll be a new order and that will stabilize for a certain period of time until we go through this nonsense again. But I hope it's a few years. One of the things, Keith, that you talk about in the article and also maybe in your book, I think I picked it up, that um, we're now looking at alternatives in institutional structures. As you mentioned, something about remote uh, work, which you mentioned, and education. We're also talking about farmers markets and and also gardening and new lifestyles and things like that. So these are kind of helpful sort of uh, little pinpoints that are happening in the culture. Yeah, they're hopeful. Um, 
they're helpful, but they also imply that something's going away. So, you know, education is changing so much that I am happy to talk to you on a podcast because I know somebody is going to be listening to this in their car and they're going to learn something that they didn't learn when they were an undergrad. Because when they were an undergrad, they were trying to go to parties and skip psych class most of the time, because that's what I did. So I think podcasting is a wonderful new thing that's booming now. I think um, I think we're learning how important in-person class is, too, having it taken from us. I think we're learning how important that is. I think our agriculture system is changing because... When the, when the virus hit, we had centralized all our meat processing, and it didn't work. And so local farms are becoming something people are interested in. You know, gardening is something people are interested in. Baking, the amount of people who learned how to bake. I learned how to use yeast for the first time in my life, Justine. I baked something with yeast. <laughs> Never done it before, but I'm stuck at home, and my kids want some cinnamon rolls, so I learned. So there's a lot of this that's going on under the surface that maybe you don't see. A lot of people are starting to work from home now, so they're changing their homes. They're buying more internet connection. They're, they're building offices. They're building home studios. And once those are built, when everyone's got a home studio, people are going to be much more open to sort of doing things like this. So we're going to see lots of changes build on these short-term changes. It just has to happen. So there's a different dynamic going on here when we talk about like Zoom meetings and and it's shifting away from the way social media has kind of built up and people taking selfies and being really me, 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 me. There's, I detect a shift uh, that's happening. Can can you, do you see that? I I think it's really interesting. Um, So when we started studying social media narcissism back, and this has been 10, 12 years, maybe more, um, what we noticed is one of the first draws for social media was showing off, basically self-enhancement. So people would get online, they'd start a personal web page at first, then maybe it became MySpace, then it became Facebook, and they would spend a lot of time getting a nice photo of themselves, they'd present themselves in a very positive way. The people doing this at first were more, more narcissistic. People who are narcissistic, we have plenty of research on this now, have more friends on social media, more connections, they get more attention. Um, when you look at the world through social media, you see a lot of narcissism. Because the people out there are narcissistic. They're the ones posting more than anyone else. There's another side to social media which people forget, which is information. We get on social media because we want to learn things that are interesting and important. With the pandemic, we've seen this boom in in YouTube videos for things like cooking. Another place you see this is, is Amazon's product reviews. That's one of the biggest social media accounts there is, is product reviewing, but it doesn't draw for quite as much narcissism as Instagram does, you know? So we've seen a shift away from this more classic social media to some of these more informational-based social medias, uh, uh, social networks. And I think that's really promising for, you know, like podcasting, like uh, YouTube videos, anything. I think giving people information through social media is really promising and very powerful. In in working, let's go back to let's say um, our personal lives, and when 
in our either work situation or even within our family or within our marriages or 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 our significant others, um, if we're living with a narcissist, um, yeah. what is it? What is it that's effective that we can do about it? Because I think that you explained that when if someone's on the spectrum of narcissism and they're more toward being more uh, extreme narcissist, it's affecting the people around them more than it's affecting the narcissist, at least in the yeah. short term. And I know a lot of people uh, want to know, what well, what can I do about it? What is effective? Yeah, it, it's the way you said that is is well put. It, and I sometimes think of narcissism like an addiction. So somebody's got an addiction, feels pretty good to them, at least at the beginning, but other people suffer more. And narcissism works like that in a way that you feel really good, but the suffering is borne by your family because they're the ones who have to prop up your broken ego all the time. So I remember I used to do radio shows and the, you know, off the air, the host would say, you know, am I narcissistic? <laughs> and I usually say, you know, you're on air, you're supposed to be a bit of a blowhard. That's kind of the, that was the shock jock vibe at the time. Do you do that with your kids? You know, do you go home and are you blowhard to your kids? Or you say, how was your day? I love you. And if you're blowhard with your kids, you got a problem, you know, but if you can turn it off and deal with your kids with love, you don't have a problem. So it's that switch that makes it really hard. Um, there's there's a, lots of specific advice, not a lot of great science on it in a relationship. One thing I try to focus on is that there are pieces of narcissism we often like. And they're pieces of narcissism we don't like. So I might have found a spouse or a partner who, who is really confident and outgoing and seems to, to know what they're doing and not really set a lot of time worrying about themselves. We might like those qualities. We might dislike the qualities. Maybe they don't pay enough attention to us. Maybe they're not as emotionally warm or caring or nurturing as, as I want. Maybe they're cheating on us or not as interested in the relationship as we want. So a lot of it is figuring out what the problem is and trying to, trying to address the specific problem. So one thing I try to tell people, if you're, if you're with somebody who's narcissistic, try, and try to align those two things. So you want to align the narcissism with being a decent human being. I'm here with Dr. W. Keith Campbell. We're talking about narcissism. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. W. Keith Campbell, author of The New Science of Narcissism. And we're talking about what you can do. And you just gave us two, two ideas. One, here the here's something you may like about your partner that's narcissistic, but here's something that is really impairing the relationship. So say more about that. Yeah, so the, the idea is, theoretically, if, if you want something from the partner, if you want emotional warmth, if you want fidelity, if you want time and attention for children, whatever it is, you try to align those with ego, meaning you're, what a legend, you're a great parent, you're always there, you went to the soccer game. Now, that might seem absurd to you because that's your job, but if you can align that with an ego need for somebody they're more likely to do it. Basically, if they can get ego points from being a good parent, being a good husband, that makes sense. So I think that alignment idea is a reasonable one. With bad cases of narcissism and NPD, I mean, you got to protect yourself. So I'm talking about, we're talking about a spectrum and we're talking about something mild here. I'm not talking, you know, you're, you're being abused or something, protect yourself. Normal, normal life. Um, Another piece of advice I give because people like things they can remember is, is CPR. This is more for parenting, but I think it's the, the principles work uh, even for your own narcissism. But there's three remedies that are out there that we see a lot with narcissism. One is compassion. It, it's sort of instead of being a mean person, being a kind person, because if you're kind and full of yourself, it's not really that much of a problem. The problem is if you're full of yourself and also mean. So if you can become more compassionate, reward, be rewarded for being compassionate, being a more loving person, that's going to be a buffer against narcissism. Let's just yeah. go with that a little bit deeper. So if your partner, let's say, or your coworker or your boss is um, not showing compassion, how yeah. can we encourage that? It is with a boss. It's very hard. So, um, but it's rewarding those behaviors. Hey, you were really kind to that kid. That I really respect that. Wow, you're a great leader. I saw the way you treated that person. You could have been really mean to that person, but you gave him a shot. That's real leadership. I respect that. You know, I I can think of an example. <laughs> this is this is like kind of wild, but uh, like let's say you're a leader who loves military parades. So a way that somebody, let's say another leader wants to get into your good graces, they invite you into their country and they put on this massive military exactly. parade for you. And that kind of starts to shift the energy, right? Yes. I, I think that, I mean, when you're dealing with people with, who are narcissistic, you start fighting with them, you end up in a conflict. It just, that's what happens. If you want to, if you want to deal with them, you give them a little ego. So if somebody wants, they want a band, you put out a band. It, it's no big deal. No that's harm. What you, no harm. You put out a band. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would laugh at that, you know, has, how Israel treated Trump. They named a town after him or something. I mean, it's just stuff like that. That just, that's how you deal with ego. And that's how you get people to be more compliant because they're going, hey, Keith, Keith allows me to feel great about myself. I'm going to be around Keith more and do what Keith wants. 
Right. So, so that's always the, written down. Yeah. That's Sorry. the C in CPR. So yeah, the P, what about the P? The P is passion. And this is one people don't think about quite as often. But when you're passionate about what you do, whether it's your work or your relationships or just exploring the world, whatever it is, when people are really passionate, ego goes away. You see this sometimes as people enter a state they call a flow state where they're so engaged in what they're doing that they really even lose track of themselves. They just go, I'm flowing, I'm here right now. And so when you get people that come from a place of passion or love or excitement or enthusiasm, that that desire to be better than you and to show off, it, it fades. That that ego goes away and people and so people get I, excited by passion. I'm I'm thinking as a parent uh, you uh, encourage parents to model this kind of yes. passion for their children. Yes. And you make a note that when it comes to battling narcissism, it's one of the most important tools. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it. people say you wanted your kid to learn how to dance or to play golf or to you know play soccer or play football, whatever it is. You can encourage them to love it and be passionate about it and have fun and be challenged. And you're not going to see a lot of ego. You'll see a lot of confidence because they will have earned confidence over time by trying over and over and over. You'll see respect for other people because they'll see other people succeed and fail. But what you don't see is that dominance. I'm the best football player. I'm the best golfer. I'm the best this. I'm better than you. I'm going to put you down. That goes away because you're doing it out of love. And, and, it, and love, passion brings people together. It doesn't separate people. That's such a great point. And the other, the R, is responsibility. So one of the challenges with, with, with ego, with narcissism, that we all have is we make mistakes in life. We do things we don't want to do. We're people we don't want to be, and it's very hard for us to take responsibility for that. When you take responsibility for your own bad behavior, that hurts psychologically saying, oh, I'm a bad person. That kind of hurts. Oh, I did that dumb thing. I had to apologize. Oh, that makes me feel bad. But after you do it, you go, you know what? I have the ability to make mistakes and keep going and build relationships. I'm, I have the ability to respond through my life. So you get, so that responsibility taking is painful when you start doing it at first, when you start taking responsibility, it hurts psychologically because you have to admit you're not perfect. But what you get for that is you get the confidence to know that you're responsible for your life and you can make it good or bad. And if you screw it up, you can apologize and move on. So I think in the long term, that responsibility is a good buffer against narcissism. I'd, I'd like to go. Thank you for that CPR kind of uh, uh, advice. Uh, but and I would like to go to, um, I know that there is something called the DSM-5, which is yeah. a, a diagnostic uh, tool that is used for in very, very huge ways. Like uh, the, it, it's important in the costs and benefits of treatment. It's important in insurance coverage. It's important. It has legal consequences. Oh, yeah. And uh, so it's it's this tool that's been set, but it was set like 30 years ago. And I know that you make a, a case for 
for adding to that uh, diagnostic. Yeah. I've got the DSM-4 is about that big and the DSM-5 is about that big. They're probably propping things up under the table. So so this is the challenge with – There's a. am going to talk a little bit, and you can stop me if you need to. I'm going to give a little backstory. When we talk about personality, we're talking about normal things that list that exist on a spectrum or continuum. So there's people that are more narcissistic and less narcissistic, more, you know, uh, strange, less strange, more mean, less mean, more social, less. So there's just that those variations. So if you were going to develop a modern model of personality disorders, you'd probably take a normal model of personality and say, well, when you get to this extreme, it has problems. But historically, what happened is people had a bunch of these personality disorders that had popped up through history. So narcissism was one, antisocial personality is another that's related, histrionic personality disorders, schizotypic personality disorder. There's, there's a range of these disorders that fall into groups. When they made the DSM-4, um, narcissism was put as a per, as a personality disorder and it was described as having these vulnerable traits like unstable certain self-esteem and these more grandiose traits like wanting to hang out with cool people so you had both those things in the definition it was about two-thirds grandiose one-third vulnerable it's kind of a mess so what happened is they tried to make a new version of the dsm the new version of the personality disorders in the DSM-5, that whole process went through. At one point, they tried to drop narcissism. There was a very big pushback from that. Uh, clinical people wanted that narcissism in there. They put narcissism back. We have a new version. And then right before they said, this is the new version, they said, ah, we're too scared to do this. We're going to put this at the end of the book. So if anybody at home has a DSM-5, you're going to see personality disorders described one way, and you're going to see a new version of personality disorders in the back. Within that, one of the issues that's come up, I keep talking about grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. This is an issue clinically. What we've suggested in others is we need a specifier. So if you're diagnosed with narcissism and it's really vulnerable, you, we should specify that it's vulnerable narcissism. If you're really mean, you're a tyrant with your narcissism, we should specify malignant narcissism because that's a term people use for really mean, antagonistic, almost psychopathic narcissism. So that's in the DSM-5, but people don't actually use it in the DSM-5. I hope that wasn't too confusing, but it is confusing. Well, it is confusing, and as you say, it's kind of a mess, and it's a legal document, uh, so to speak. I mean, it's used in courts. So right. I, I'm so sorry that we can't go more detail into oh, this, could, but yeah, maybe I, other people can pick up your book and find out more and, and look at your website. Thank you so much, Keith, for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It's so much fun. Good. Great. It was for me, too. I've been speaking with Dr. W. Keith Campbell. He's the author of The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. And if you want to know more about his work, go to his website, wkeithcampbell.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, 
newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3707. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.